Today's episode is brought to you by Hello Bargello. Hello Bargello is dedicated to bringing back the vintage needlecraft of Bargello. You may remember Bargello as those weird cool pillows that were ubiquitous on couches of the 70s, but even if you think you've seen Bargello before, you've never seen Bargello like this. Hello Bargello projects are modernized for today's trends with just a little wink to Bargello's retro roots. Visit HelloBargello.com for free how-to videos, kits, digital patterns, and everything you need to discover your new favorite craft. Use code ALLIANCE for 15% off orders just for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Welcome to episode 156 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about discovering the life you're meant to live as a maker with my guest, Melanie Fallick. Melanie is an independent writer, editor, and creative director and a lifelong maker. She's the author most recently of Making a Life, Working by Hand and Discovering the Life You Are Meant to Live, as well as several other titles, including the seminal Knitting in America, and bestsellers Kids Knitting and Weekend Knitting. She's the former publishing director at STC Craft Melanie Fallick Books, an imprint of Abrams, where she spearheaded books by many of the DIY world's most esteemed authors, including Natalie Channon, Lena Corwin, Keith Fassett, Lada Jansdottir, Clara Parks, Heather Ross, and Denise Schmidt. She's also the creative director and editor of Mason Dixon Knitting Field Guides. Find her on Instagram at Melanie Fallick and at MelanieFallick.com. Melanie Fallick, welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. You were my guest on episode 39, recorded back in December of 2014. And at that time, you were still at Abrams. And mm-hmm. we talked about craft book publishing and what you were looking for in a book proposal and the importance of the size of a potential author's audience and what the future might hold for craft books. And listening back to that interview now, your life has really changed and it changed actually not too long after that interview. So I'm glad we captured that moment. Um, But one thing you said then that I think carries over into the project that we're going to be talking about today, which is a beautiful new book that you have that's sitting right next to me called Making a Life that just came out or is just about to come out, um, is that creating beautiful books about topics that were traditionally women's work is a feminist act. And that's something that you said back then that I think really carries forward into what you are working on now. And reading your new book, I was struck by its seriousness of purpose. 
So often when I tell people that I have a craft business, I am not so sure that they take me seriously, but you really see the importance in the act of making. And um, I just thought that that was an interesting carryover from the last interview to this interview. I think it's a carryover of my sort of goal and purpose throughout my entire career and throughout my lifelong experience as a maker. I have always felt like it was a very important part of who I am and about of who many of us are, our histories, our presence, our futures. And I always felt like I was trying to, to say that through my own work and through the quality of the other people's work that I helped to put out in the world. I feel like I finally got to the point in my life where I had the confidence to express it directly and to take it out of, or to try to take it out of the so-called craft and hobby conversation. You know, I've worked mainly on books and magazines, but I'd say in the last 20 years, mainly on books. And when I was at Abrams, for example, the books that I worked on were categorized as craft and hobby. And I, that always bothered me so much because I feel like those words in our culture suggest a lack of importance, um, something you do when the important parts of your life, you know, when you have room for them in your life because you've dealt with more important matters. And I have always felt that the work I do with my hands is integral to who I am. It's a real lifeline for me. It's determined certainly how I spend a lot of my free time. It's determined most of my career. It's determined where I travel to, who I spend time with and how I feel about myself and my own ability to create with my hands, to take care of myself, to add beauty to the world, to communicate with others. So for me, this book is, I don't know, the word just came to me, manifesto, but that, that sounds maybe a little too self-important, but, but it's something that I've been thinking about for so long and I and I feel like I've been fighting for or advocating for forever. So I want to go back to that moment when you knew that it was time to leave Abrams because that really takes us to the beginning of this book when you talk about this moment when you were at Yale, you were, I think, attending maybe a conference, and yeah. you had kind of like a, a mini breakdown or crisis, I guess. You were in the bathroom, <laughs> and you looked down at your hands, and I wondered what you realized when you looked at your hands in the bathroom at this conference at Yale, if you can tell us about that moment. Well... I need to back up to a little bit before that. Yeah, I was at a conference, which was about, it was a week-long conference at Yale. It was about the future of publishing. And when I got there, I realized something I probably should have realized beforehand, but somehow I didn't, but that 
the focus really was much more on the business side of publishing than the creative side. And the creative side is the side that I uh, work in the most and where my focus has always been. And I kept on trying to convince myself, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. You need to understand the business side. There's something important happening here. You have to engage with it. But the truth was that I felt like a square peg in a round hole. Sometimes during the week, at the end of the day, they would have a lecturer come in who was a, a little with a lecture that was a little bit lighter than the others and a little bit less business oriented. And on one of the days, there was a man named Nigel Holmes who um, does all sorts of things, but he's most well known for his information graphics, which is a kind of graphic design where you take complicated ideas and you make and you simplify them visually. And he's world renowned for that. And he's an amazing presenter. And he started his lecture, though, by um, showing us a, a, a wooden boat that he had carved for his grandson. And then he went along and did this very entertaining lecture and talked about how he does his work and how he thinks. But then at the end of his lecture, he said, you know, technology is great but never stop looking at your hands and, or you might've said something like technology and business are great, but you know, never stop looking at your hands. And he showed us his boat again. And I literally got up from the lecture, walked to the bathroom, went into a private stall and looked at my hands and started to cry because I knew that I had gotten sort of through the sort of corporate process, I've gotten to the point where I had to spend a lot of my time or I felt like I had to spend a lot of my time really focused on the business sides of, the, of what I was doing. And I was really always having to look at like how many books sold and what's the profit margin and how many Instagram followers does this author have? And those were subjects that I had to deal with. And they felt it made me feel really uncomfortable. It made me feel unhappy. It made me feel like I was separate from my own creative impulses. I should say on top of that, I was so incredibly busy doing my work that I was stressed a lot of the time. And so even though I was working with authors whose work I greatly admired and believed in, I wasn't living that life. You know, somebody else was mowing my lawn. You know, somebody, I didn't, I was, my garden was full of weeds. I rarely got to, or made time to knit anything. I was just so busy making a living. And I think it was that moment at Yale with, after Nigel's lecture that I just thought the answer is right here in my hands, like literally in my hands. What I love to do is work with my hands. And even though I'm publishing books about working with one's hands, I'm not living that life. And I need, and that's making me really unhappy. And did you know right away that you needed to write another book? Or was it just, I need to leave Abrams and... You know, and I, and I imagine, although it became starkly clear that you needed to leave Abrams, leaving an imprint that held your name couldn't have been easy. No, um, I didn't. I didn't know at that instant. I mean, maybe deep down, I knew at that instant I need to leave, needed to leave. I mean, that was um, 
2012 and I didn't leave until 2015. It was, it was really, it was really hard to leave for a lot of reasons. You know, when I got, when I got that job, I felt like, you know, the luckiest editor in the world. And I, I loved that job for a really long time. I think that I needed to accept that it had run its course and I was really afraid. You know, you sort of get sucked into this idea of like, oh my gosh, like this is the salary I need to have. And, oh, if I go to a social event and people ask me like, what do you do? Which is what people generally say. I need to have an answer that's concise. And I thought about, you know, my 401k and the fact that, you know, my employer was matching it and uh, that I needed, like, how could I give that up? And, and certainly the health insurance was an issue. And I really struggled trying to figure out how to make that job work. And then um, the, the truth of the matter is, and it's just a reality for a lot of people, my husband got a job that had health insurance. And a couple of years after that experience at Yale, and that was when I really had to sort of face the situation and say, like, okay, like the biggest thing holding me back in the, was the health insurance for myself, my husband, and my child. And so once that wasn't in the way, then I, I really had to think deeply. And um, I was actually working, the CEO of, of Abrams and I had a very good relationship and we had some conversations. I can't remember for how long, but it might've been for six months, like talking about the future of the imprint. We were talking about expanding it and I wanted to make it work and he wanted to make it work. But, you know, we both kind of knew that it might not. And ultimately, you know, they, he called in a consultant and, um, one day she asked me if I wanted to take like some business classes. She thought that would be a good idea. And I said, oh, yeah, of course, I would. I always want to learn new things. And I went home and I thought about it. And I thought, if I'm going to go back to school, I don't I want to take a graphic design class. I, I don't want to take a business class. And I think it was the next day that I called the um, CEO and said, I, I've made a decision. I'm, I think it's time for me to leave. So then we, you know, we left, you know, I stayed, I can't remember how long, a couple of months, but it was on really good terms. And I freelanced for a while to finish up books that I had already started. It just opened up space in my life to figure out what was next. And I really had no idea. A lot of people said, oh, you know, you could get a job with any publisher. And I thought, if I want to do what I've already do been doing, I can stay at Abrams. You know, <laughs> that wouldn't make sense for me. And it was really scary, but I just knew that I needed space and time. And I had arranged, you know, freelance work. So I had some income. I had, you know, my husband could provide the health insurance. And so I really felt like I just needed to wander around. And then just naturally, I decided to start making things with my hands. And these weren't, you know, grand momentous things. I, you know, I did some indigo dyeing and shibori. And I, I, I did love, I learned to lattice lace my, my Chuck Taylor sneakers. And I like that. I carved stamps. I... I did a bunch of different things. And you and started one, you started a blog. I remember that. 
Yes. Well, the thing was, I went to RISD for two weeks and took an intensive graphic design class. And then I thought, well, my friend, well, Natalie Channon of Alabama Channon, she said, Melanie, you have to have a web presence because if you don't, people are going to like come up with all sorts of stories about where you went, why, why you left Abrams and they're going to think it was a bad thing. So you need to kind of have a landing page for that. And so I took this class at RISD on um, identity design and branding. And in the process of taking the class, I was learning the basics of Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop and InDesign, um, which I really had always wanted to do. And so my goal was to kind of create this identity that I could then use to create a website and then could write about what I was doing so that people wouldn't make assumptions <laughs> about why I left Abram. Yeah. And I even started a blog, which was kind of ridiculous because I think blogs were sort of on the, you know, people were doing fewer blogs for good reason and doing a blog just sets you up for like, you know, then your site becomes this thing where it's like, oh, look, she hasn't written on her blog in six months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, it's hard. I mean, it was good. It was hard. It was hard. So I, um, I so did how did you, how did you, um, realize, so tell me about the moment you realized this sort of wandering, as you called it, and making and exploring and, you know, getting back to the garden and actually pulling up the weeds was actually a, a book, was going to be a book, was going to need to be a book. I was making a box. I was following Leanna all day, who used to work with me at Abrams and now is the head of Creative Bug. She did a I think it was a, like a, I don't know if it was a creative bug class or a Facebook live or something, but it was how to make a box out of a square of paper. So I sat down with my paper and I did it. And in a couple of minutes, I had learned how to do it well. And it was a box. And I thought, oh my gosh, a box like that is so useful. And at the time I thought like, wow, if I, in a different time in history, like being able to make a box would be really important because, or, you know, a receptacle because you could then store seeds in it or collect food or, or just have a place to keep something that you need. And I thought it was so connected to this idea of survival. And then I realized it seemed in my memory. It was in that moment that what I was really striving for was a connection to my survival and that my work at Abrams had become like too much, too separated from that. And that I wanted to get my hands dirty in the garden. I wanted to mow my own lawn. I wanted to like make my own box or bag or knit my own sweater or socks or all sorts of things. I, I didn't, it wasn't that I had, like I needed those things to survive because certainly it would be quote unquote easier to purchase them or it was a box. We don't always have to purchase boxes, but you know what I mean? But that I wanted to know how to do those things, that that's what made me more connected, feel more connected to my soul. And, and then the pieces kind of came together for me in that moment. And I thought, I need, I want, this is what I want to write a book about. This is what I've been trying 
to say through all the work I've done since my very first book, Knitting in America, which came out in 1996, um, this is what I've been trying to say all along. And, you know, now's the time that I can say it, both because I've had this life experience and I feel like I can articulate what my message is, but also because the way that our culture has changed, you know, with the, I think people are really receptive to it. And obviously, you know, the whole, what I call the DIY renaissance, this has been sort of brewing for a long time and it's really coming to the forefront in our culture. And it makes sense to, to sort of explore that in a book. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Hello Bargello. Hello Bargello is a brand dedicated to reinvigorating the vintage needlecraft of Bargello. Big in the 60s and 70s, Bargello fell out of style and was almost forgotten in time. Founder Brett Barra works from vintage Bargello books to breathe new life into old patterns, modernizing them with fresh color palettes and new projects that are designed for today's modern makers. Bargello is a fast, easy, and fun style of needlepoint that uses worsted weight tapestry wool or yarn, a gridded canvas, and tons of colors to achieve geometric technicolor designs. Projects range from accessories like earrings, eyeglass cases, and handbags to home decor items like wall hangings, planters, pillows, and tissue boxes. You may remember Bargello as those weird cool pillows that were ubiquitous on couches of the 70s, but even if you think you've seen Bargello before, you've never seen Bargello like this. Hello Bargello projects are modernized for today's trends with just a little wink to Bargello's retro roots. Bargello is easy to learn fast to do and totally addictive. The stitches are large in scale, so the projects go fast compared to other types of needlework. And most people say that once they pick up a Bargello project, they can't put it down. On hellobargello.com, you can learn to Bargello with free videos, gain an understanding of what supplies are required, and pick up a kit or digital pattern to make an amazing project. Hello Bargello kits come with everything you need to start and finish your project, including a how to Bargello guide and pattern booklet, DMC tapestry wool, canvas, needles, and any special notions required. In bold colors and wild patterns, Hello Bargello projects make an eye-catching statement piece for your wardrobe or decor. And they're amazing gifts if you're looking for something totally different for your gift list this year. So follow Hello Bargello on Instagram at Hello Bargello for fresh Bargello content every day, including live stitch-alongs and how-tos, behind the scenes, color inspiration, and lots more. And visit HelloBargello.com to check out the Bargello magic and use that code ALLIANCE for 15% off orders just for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Thank you so much, Hello Bargello. And now back to my conversation with Melanie. 
So you went back to Artisan, who had published mm-hmm. Knitting in America, yes. and told them, I'm back. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I have a new idea. And and were they receptive right away? Yes. So when I decided to leave Abrams, one of the first people that I talked to was Leah Ronan, who's the publisher at Artisan now. She and I had lunch and she said, we should work together. I don't know how, it, you know, what we can do together, whether, you know, you might help us with books that we are acquiring, or you might write your own book, but we should just keep talking, which was great. I felt honored that she wanted to open up that dialogue with me. And so I, she and I met, we had that lunch together. And then a couple months later, we met at her office and we talked about a lot of different ideas, but none of them were, we were like, that's it. That's exactly what you should be doing. And and then it, I think it was a couple of months after that that I had the idea for making a life and I contacted her and she immediately got it and she was really excited about it. At the time, you know, it wasn't like I presented her with a proposal for exactly the book that it became. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but I had enough enough of a sense of it to present it to her in a way that was appealing to her and she trusted me enough to sort of let the blanks be blank for a while and figuring that I would, um, I would figure it out. And I love this quote in the beginning of the book, in the opening, you have an interview with a scholar, Ellen Desan, Yake. I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name right, but she studies the cultural anthropology of making, which she calls artifying. And I love that word, artifying things. And um, this is what she says. She says, I have said that the psychological losses of not artifying can be likened to a vitamin deficiency. You may not know that you have it, but once you learn that you do and rectify it, you feel so much better. And I just love that um, because it is like that. Like you may not realize that getting away from making things by hand is damaging you, but when you do get back to it, you're like, oh, right, yeah, now I feel good, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, I I love that too. I was actually quoting it to somebody else yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, I just thought that was great. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the contents of this book. So this book is really um, visits that you make to a whole lot of different people. And each visit you talk to people, it's not Q&A, it's actually like you write about your visit to them. And so first I want to talk about um, your choice of people, um, because one of the things I thought was really great about it is that you didn't choose people because they are the best necessarily craftsmen. You know what I mean? They're not like the number one weaver in the world or something like that, or because they're like super famous. Um, you know, they're the the person we've all already heard about, although some of them are, right? Like some of them are yeah. famous. Natalie Channon's in here and we all know who Natalie Channon is. And there's definitely people that, um, that we've all heard about that are in here. But you 
chose them for other reasons because of the way that they're living their lives or something like that. So I wondered if you could kind of talk about that piece of it, like how you even found them, um, like how you, because some of them I'm assuming weren't people you necessarily had previous relationships with. I mean, you know, Christine Vehar from A Verb for Keeping Warm, yes, you already knew her before. Um, some of them maybe you already knew from from Abrams. Um, but then other people I'm, I think you, you met along the way. Yeah, it's a big mix. There's not, there wasn't a science to it. Um <laughs> It was really kind of by the seat of my pants. I had some, I knew that I wanted to cover a lot of different media. I knew that I wanted to cover, you know, different geographic areas. And I knew that I wanted to, that I needed to choose people whose work resonated for me. But as you said, I mean, I do sincerely admire the work that they do so I'm not saying these people aren't the best but I'm but that being the best wasn't like a criteria it was really how they were leading their lives and how they were taking agency over their own lives by the choices that they made to sort of to create a life for themselves was which was in keeping with their strong personal beliefs about what was important to them. And so, you know, it was all sorts of different ways. Yes, there were people that I already knew. Some people, I just, you know, saw work on Instagram and then looked online to see if they had a website and reached out to them. Some people um, I had, I came across a book that they had written. I think, you know, yeah, some people were recommended to me by others, but it was really not scientific. I just kind of knew when somebody's story made sense and it was a an organic process of, you know, start just committing to the first person and being like, okay, you know, I have somebody who does this or that and she lives or he lives in this part of the country. So that's kind of covered. <laughs> it just worked from there, I feel like I could continue to write this book for the rest of my life. And in a lot of ways, I would really enjoy that. You know, people have been making with their hands since sort of, or humans have since sort of the beginning of humanity. And although um, so much has changed, I mean, it, it just exists in every culture all over the world. And so there, it's infinite, the number of people that I can include. So I really, as much as I want to highlight the work of the people who are in the book, and I hope that being in the book will be positive for these people, I really hope more than anything that readers realize that they could be in the book too, that we are, we are all makers and rather than maybe feeling intimidated by the people in the book and thinking like, oh, I wish I could have that life, but realizing you can, you make a lot of decisions in your life on a daily basis about how you spend your time and where you put your focus and what success means to you and what happiness means to you. Or I should say you make a lot of decisions and sometimes they're in keeping with what success means to you or happiness means to you. And sometimes they're not. And when we come become really aware of those choices, sometimes we can realign our priorities and 
live in a way that's more true to who we really want to be. I think you do a really neat job in something that I think is really unusual for a book about craft. I think I probably have not seen it before, um, at least not that I remember, which is to say that you put yourself in this book and in in a way it's partially memoir or you're like on this journey of personal discovery. So you traveled with a photographer and you yourself are in the photos with the makers that you're visiting. And in that way, you are a proxy for us, for the reader. And so mm-hmm. you take us along and you're like the novice or the person who is working, doing the work of trying to reconnect and learning, you know, learning the craft along with the expert and um, learning about how to reclaim this maker lifestyle. Um, And you talk about, you know, the stress that you were under, the transition that you had just gone through professionally and the journey that you're on as you sort of progress through each of these visits with, with each of these makers. And in all honesty, I really, I mean, I feel like we see a fair number of books where, you know, we highlight makers in their studios, that kind of thing. Um, but we don't see any where the author is like on this personal journey of discovery along the way and takes us through that. And But you're there. I mean, you're right there. And I just wondered whether that was like a conscious choice on your part. Like, I'm going to be in the narrative. Yeah. That was definitely a conscious conscious choice. And I think um, in the very beginning, in trying to figure out, you know, who to include, what to include, I realized that I there was no way I could even really scratch the surface of like all the makers in the world and all the amazing stories to be told. But I could tell my story. And so it it the book is my journey through and in that way I felt like I could first of all set it up in a manageable way you know kind of define some parameters or boundaries that would not would help me to make this project not over well it was overwhelming a lot of the time but not overwhelming to the point where it was crippling because as I said before in every culture in the world, there is, or there are traditions of making by hand. So how could I cover all of that? I couldn't. The only thing I can tell is my, my story. And my story includes these experiences with makers in all of these different places. And I like what you said about, you know, me being a proxy for the reader, because again, as I said before, I, I don't, I really want my goal for this book is for the reader to feel inspired and empowered and, and, and for people to spark a conversation about the role that making by hand plays in our lives in the 21st century, the vital role that it plays in keeping with this idea of a journey. And I know the people listening can't see it, but if you, I'll just describe like on the, 
table of contents page. It's a piece of hand-spun yarn. It's actually from Judith McKenzie in Forks, Washington. And um, it just kind of meanders along the center of the, the page and, um, and kind of loops around. And, and it, it, to me, that's on the table of contents. And you see the beginning of that piece of yarn and you see the end of that piece of yarn. And so that really represents kind of the twists and turns of my journey. And, um, you know, each of us have our own unique journey. And so hopefully this book will inspire people to really like get in the driver's seat in terms of how they want to live. And you went to, you went to the Makery, um, which is a, a weekend long art retreat. And we've had Ali Dijon on the podcast. Um, so people can go back and, and hear more about the Makery, but you went um, to the Makery and participated and also gave a presentation there about the work you were doing for the book. And through that presentation, we're able to connect with makers that you ended up including in the book. So yeah, I went to the Makery and um, and it was re- really at the very beginning of working on the book. It was actually during a period when I was thinking about canceling it. <laughs> and um, it just felt too overwhelming to me. But Ali had in, invited me to give a presentation, I think it was after lunch one day, about about my project and so I figured okay I'll I'll you know I mean I wanted to do it but I don't think she knew in the back of my mind I was like I don't know if I'm gonna do this but in any case and so I told them my story of how I left my job and then spent all this time making things and then kind of realized that I really needed this connection to my hands despite the fact that machines could do a lot of things for me And I read at the end of the presentation a few lines from Anna Zilberg's book, Knitting for Anarchists. And those lines were, these days our fingers are primarily trained to push buttons. To leave your fingers untrained for anything beyond pushing and perhaps twisting is like leaving a voice without singing. Certainly knitting isn't the only thing that fingers can do, but it is a good thing, simple yet capable of endless complexity. And after I read those lines, I asked, everyone in the audience, if they would share why making by hand was important to them. And Elsa Mora, who was one of the teachers there and with whom I had taken a paper cutting class earlier that day, literally like bounded out of her seat and began to tell her own story about how she feels that art and making art literally saved her lives. She, her life, she was in Cuba. She was an artist um, with the fall of the Soviet Union. Things became really dire there. She felt like she didn't know how she was going to survive. And then she saw an ad for a competition, uh, for an art competition. And she ended up doing a drawing and entering it. And she won the competition. And that literally like opened up a whole other kind of passage in her life which changed everything but she was telling about how like even in these dire circumstances in Cuba it was sort of this need to express herself with her hands that both comforted her and saved her and I had already decided 
earlier that day after taking Elsa's class and being so impressed by her that she was going to be the first person that I asked to be part of the book. And so, of course, after she kind of made that statement after my short presentation, I felt even more sure that she was the perfect person to ask to be the first person in my book. And she's been, fortunately, she said yes. And she's been an amazing cheerleader for me and for the book ever since. She's an incredible person. I followed her career from, for, I mean, I, I think from the time I first got online. Um, so that's incredible. And I was so excited to see that she was in here. So, and she's right in the middle. <laughs> um, so it was great to see that she was here. Um, and so I wondered if you could just say a few words about how you kept all of this organized. So you traveled with this photographer, um, Rin, who um, came with you from to most of the locations. And she took the photos so that you would have beautiful photos to accompany each of the, of the pieces. And I just wondered how you kept everything organized did you record all the interviews like on a on a on your phone or um or how did you do that and did you have like a spreadsheet or I mean just talk a little bit about the mechanics of getting this all I mean I know you were overwhelmed at times but you must have come up with some sort of a system because um it's it's tricky to get you know this is this is a, a tricky feat to get all of this um information just all the data part of it um uh, wrangled. It, I just, I think it's like one foot in front of the other. Like I remember once when I was working on knitting in America and I didn't have any experience with like growing things or raising sheep or whatever. And I said to this woman who had a sheep farm, like, cause she was talking about like the sheep and then she was talking about like making jam from her berries. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, how do you keep track of all of that? And she said, well, it's not really that hard. I mean, you make, jam when the berries are ripe and <laughs> and it's really like that kind of common sense thing about like once I had decided like where who I wanted to visit and where I wanted to go it was just like all right well I need to make I need to have an airplane ticket I need to have a place to sleep I need to have a way to go from one place to the next I need to make sure that everybody is available on the day and time that I can visit them it's amazing when you reach out to people and ask for help, how much help they give you. And so did you bring a tape recorder with you and then trans? Yes, I did. I, not a tape recorder, my phone. I taped it. I put it all on my phone. But what I, one thing that I did before each trip is that I had um, an, a conversation with each person I was visiting to talk about you know, what would happen when I got there? Because in most cases, it was both the photography and the interview. So there needed to be a certain number of things put in place and a kind of a plan of how it was going to happen. And then we also needed to figure out, and this was tricky, figuring out before I had done an in-depth interview, what kind of photography we were going to be pursuing in order to make sure that we could, um, you know, the right things were in place for that to happen. So I would do an interview and that I would record, and that was using the special app that you, Abby, um, told me about, which I don't remember the name of, but it records calls on um, Skype and FaceTime. 
Yeah, it's called tape. And, call. uh, uh, I think, okay. oh, it, it's called um, call recorder, Ecamm call recorder. Yeah, that one. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I would um, record that first, com- well, it wasn't the first conversation I ever had with the people on the phone, but it was kind of like that beginning conversation to prepare for the trip. And then I would do that with my computer in that program. And then I would, when I got there, I would tape everything on my phone and then I would upload it to the cloud. And I was so, so, so paranoid that I was going to lose the interviews, but I did not lose any of them. And, um, and then when I, not right away when I got home, it kind of depended on what the schedule was like. But um, ultimately, I transcribed every single interview, almost word for word in most cases, um, just by typing it into my computer, like listening to it and, and typing it. And that took so long. Well, you, in some you, ways, you should have called me because I use a transcription service. Although, do you feel that um, transcribing by hand was helpful for your process? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was definitely helpful. And a lot of people said like, oh my gosh, you should do, you know, have it transcribed. And I did look into some transcription services and um, I'm, I can't remember it all that clearly, but some of it was, it was too expensive for the amount of, I mean, I had like, you know, sometimes for some people I had like four or five hours of yeah. interview. Yeah. So but the actual transcribing, I mean, in a way, like it was kind of a way of like procrastinating from actually writing um, <laughs> the pieces because that was scary. But it, it brought me back so clearly and viscerally to the time I spent with the people. And it was very important to me that the writing be evocative of the experience. I, you know, you talked earlier about there are other maker books out there um, or books with profiles of makers. And, you know, the, the author isn't usually like a character in the story. You know, my book is different in that way. And I think it is a diff- is different than a lot of them because the, the profiles I wrote are, are pretty deep and, and are really, it's not just about like, where do you find your inspiration or how did you learn to do woodwork? You know, it really, in a way it, it goes into the sort of the psychology of the person. And a lot of people do say to me after an interview, um, wow, that's not, that felt like a really good therapy session. <laughs> people sometimes say that to me after being on the podcast, I will tell you. That. Yeah. But I can, I, can t- I can see how people would have said that to you after your visit, for sure. Because also you're an engaged listener, you know, and that can feel very therapeutic as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you... Sometimes for all of us, we don't always take time out to to think deeply about why we do what we do, why we love what we love, what's important to us, and if that's in keeping with how we're living. So, which is again what I'm hoping this book will inspire people to do. So, I was struck by the fact that you didn't end the book with a chapter that like summarized 
the end of your journey. And I mean, it makes sense now that you're saying that you could keep writing this book for the rest of your life and that you would enjoy that process. And maybe that's why you chose not to. Um, and there's a there's a, a hefty kind of thank you sort of section at the back, but there's not like a summation of like, you know, in the beginning you talk about where you're starting and then you're in the process throughout of discovery but there's not a chapter at the end of like, and here's where I landed. You know what I mean? And I wondered whether you thought about putting something like that in and it was a, a choice to not put that there. Huh. Well, I thought about doing what what you're suggesting. Um, but let me say, like, I feel like, you know, in the introduction, I kind of set it up to how I came to writing the book. And then I kind of wrote about um, what I learned in that journey and how I decided to organize the book based upon some themes of what we stand to gain when we make with our hands. And then I felt like I, I kind of summed it up at the end of the introduction. I see. Of, okay. So it's, and then and then you go on the journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I go on the journey, but then. And then the thank you section, you know, is another, rather than a traditional acknowledgements, it's kind of another step in the story. And it's sort of, I thank people by way of, you know, a story of how, what they did sort of helped me to achieve this goal. And, you know, I did, I had it in my head that I was going to do some great summation of, you know, what I learned about why making my hand is important and vital in the 21st century. And the truth is that I tried to do that and I couldn't, I, or I didn't succeed at it. And I think it was because every time I did it, it started feeling like a dissertation or like a, like a textbook I feel like my my strength is telling stories and I think that people are generally more receptive to storytelling than they are to, you know, straight kind of dissertations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's easier for us to kind of take that in. And so maybe this is a rationalization, but I kind of convinced myself that the book I was meant to write was a book of stories. You know, I realized that expressing ourselves creatively is really key. And when we feel like we're not able to express ourselves, it's like, you know, it's like a clogged drain. And we all have, you know, different means of doing that. You know, for me and for, I imagine, people who will be drawn to this book, it's through what we do with our hands. You know, other people might be singing or dancing. Um, I often think about the fact that with children, we really encourage them to sing and to dance and to paint and finger paint. And we don't say like, oh, you're not very good at that when they're little, you know, we're just, we're, we enjoy like what they do and, and we celebrate what they do. But then gradually in our culture, we kind of shut, or I, I don't know if it's we, but our culture 
can sort of shut that down and say, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning about like hobbies, you know, it sort of tells you like, oh, well, you need to, to make a living, you know, you, you can't do that. So push it aside and maybe it could be a hobby or you're not the best at that. Like, so you, maybe you shouldn't do it because you should pursue something that you're the best at. And like, why shouldn't you sing if you're not a good singer? Why shouldn't you paint if you're not a quote unquote good painter? And like, who gets to decide who's good at it anyway? Like we can decide that for ourselves. And, and so, yes, we do need to make a living. And, you know, it's not like we can all now just like, I'm just going to sit and knit for a living, but we, but where we prioritize things can be very different than what our culture kind of feeds us and tells us to do because our culture keeps on telling us to be passive consumers, you know, like just, you don't feel good. They don't say like make something, they say buy something, you know, you, you know, you buy things to show who you are, like how big is your house or what kind of clothes do you wear? Or what kind of pocketbook do you carry? But those things are just like band-aids to what's like in our souls. And so I feel like through our hands, we can, get a better connection to what's in our souls. And then we can make choices to live our lives in ways that are in keeping with that so that we can make a living and make a good life at the same time. And Melanie, I want to make sure we get to your list. Um, so you have three things to recommend and um they are really good things. So one of them is a book that I've had on my list as well. And it's written by somebody who's featured in your book, Wendy Chin, and it's called mm-hmm. A Year of Knots. Um, Do you so want me to say something about tell it? Us, tell us why you like this book. I saw that you were making some knots. Yeah, I learned about Wendy through her project, A Year of Knots, um, which in which she made a new learned a new knot a day for every day for a year. And I was really intrigued by that. And she had left her job at Apple and then she wanted to work with her hands, did a whole bunch of things, started working with these knots, realized this was her, her medium. And then through that year of activity, like really found her voice and her as an artist. And so she writes about that in the book, which, you know, is a story that clearly would resonate with me, but also I just love that the fact that I can sit down and make, you know, a knot in a fairly short amount of time and with my hands and I use clothesline to do it. And I just, I just get a lot of satisfaction from that. And actually my husband and I have been doing it together. So like, well, we did it, we talked about it and then we did it two days together where like we both got our length of cord and, we worked it out and one of the knots was really complicated. So we kind of like, we didn't each do our own. We talked it through and it was just like this little piece of time that felt like a little gift to ourselves. And now I have this really cool knot and I I would like to continue making the knots in the book and I don't know where it will lead me, but it seems to be really satisfying and good for my marriage. (laughs) And they're beautiful and useful, which is the best. Um, yeah. And you recommend Educated by Tara Westover. My mom just sent me this book. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, she, the way that she was brought up 
in this very, what do you, I forget what you call it, but you know, in this family where they like didn't go to school and, um, she was like secluded, basically secluded and, you know, working the land and sort of avoiding like the government and, um, the educational system and preparing for the apocalypse, it seemed, and how she kind of lived in that and then found her way out of it and then ended up getting an education or going to college. That was the first sort of formal education that she ever had. And, And then learning about things like that she never knew about, like when she was in college and she was in a class and they mentioned the Holocaust, she said, what's that? And so for me, and she's such a beautiful writer, but just the being her writing about her life, which is so different than anything I've ever experienced, you know, just was really enlightening about like a different perspective on the world. And then sort of the added part of like her kind of straying away from the beliefs of her family and then the beliefs of most of her family and then, you know, how she coped with, with that breaking apart of the relationship. So I, I started reading it because I needed, I felt like the, my reading muscle had become very weak and, you know, I was so, Oh, it'd be so much easier to just watch something on Netflix and read a book before bed. And I just needed a book that was really gonna, I was like, I got to try to do this. And I, and my son actually bought it for himself and I picked it up and I started reading it. And I just, I couldn't, I did, could put it down. I didn't read it in one sitting, but every night I couldn't wait. I was like, Oh, I can't wait to go to bed and get into my bed and read that book. And I really feel like it was the book that got me over the hump. And so now I do not spend much time watching, you know, Netflix or anything like that, or even like looking on my phone at night, like I'm back into the habit of reading, but I really felt like it was a muscle that had become very, very weak. That's great to hear. Yeah, I don't watch TV because I don't have time. <laughs> but then I have to say, I um, can't participate in a lot of conversations because people talk about TV shows and I don't know what they're saying. So <laughs> there is some positive, I guess, yeah. of watching TV and not opting out of all pop culture, which is what I've chosen <laughs> to do. Um, okay, yeah. so... Um, and your last recommendation is ab- about your garden, which you've gotten back to. And that's lovely. So you have a friend who gave you some seeds for a hyacinth. A hyacinth bean. Mm-hmm. Is that different yes. from a hyacinth? Okay, sorry. Yes, it is. And I can't tell you like a lot about the plant, except that it's this viney plant and it, you know, it grows well on like trellises and things that it can climb. And you first get this pretty, I got late pinkish flowers and then you get these seed pods. And right now I have them and they're like this beautiful, like sort of like the color of red wine and they're seed pods, but these are, they're called beans, but I think you, if you prepare them in a very, very meticulous way, you could eat them, but I don't think a lot of people eat them, but it's very beautiful. And I just, you know, I got them in the mail from Laura Poulette, who is someone who's profiled in the book. And she has a very, very extensive garden. And she just sent them to me as a surprise, like just a surprise gift in the spring. And they're seeds that, you know, she had, what do you call it, harvested from her garden last year. 
and she sent them to me and then I planted them in my garden and now they're so beautiful and even this time of year when a lot of the garden is kind of looking like just dry and you know ready to sort of be turned over into the ground and composted but you know I have these beautiful pods and and I just think that was the most lovely gift and now I'm going to keep some of my seeds so that then I can share them with other people that's and lovely. Yeah. they can have that gift. That's super lovely. And, um, and maybe a metaphor for your book as a whole. So, um, so Melanie, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be on the craft industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me. Today's episode was brought to you by Hello Bargello. Hello Bargello is dedicated to bringing back the vintage needlecraft of Bargello. Visit hellobargello.com to see why everyone's getting hooked on this new old craft. The Hello Bargello website features free how-to videos, kits, digital patterns, and everything you need to make an amazing Bargello project. Use the code ALLIANCE for 15% off orders just for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Thank you so much, Hello Bargello. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow craft professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.